Well, how are you guys today? Yeah, you doing all right on this rainy day? Uh, here we all are. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see everybody. My name's Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Especially if you're new, I want to say a special welcome to you. You're our honored guest. I hope you'll fill out that Connect card that we have in the seat for you there so that we can get you a gift before you leave today and get to know you. I hope you'll even consider coming to Starting Point today if you weren't considering it. We have the food and everything ready. That's why we have it is for you if you're new, and so we would love to see you there for that as well. But it's also a great day to be new because we're starting a new message series today in Philippians called Extremely Ordinary Christianity, as you saw from the video. And so we'll be in this for the next several weeks, really month and a half or so leading up to Easter. So you can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 today. That's where we'll be. Um, so you can turn there if you want to find it on your device, or uh, we'll have it up on the screens for you if you need it as well. Uh, but we're going to be in this series here, and we're going to see what it looks like to mature in your life as a Christian. Uh, you know, in a maturing life of a Christian might look kind of extreme to those outside of the Christian faith, outside of the church. They might look in and think that what we do and how we live is kind of out there. It's kind of radical. It's kind of extreme. To us, it's just ordinary. This is what the ordinary Christian life looks like. You know, we do things like have joy in the midst of suffering. We do things like trust God to save us rather than trying to save ourselves. We do things like love others though they may oppose us or forgive others though we might not on the surface feel like forgiving them or think that they deserve forgiveness, right? We do these kind of things that are completely countercultural to the way that the world tends to live their lives. To them, it looks very extreme. To us, it's ordinary. Thus, it's extremely ordinary Christianity. You're, that's, that's where it comes from. And today, as we turn to chapter one, we're going to see the major theme that drives extremely ordinary Christianity for the rest of the book. And it's love. Today we're talking about love. That's where Paul starts, the author of this letter. That's where we're going to start. So this is our main point for today. If you want to write it down and you're taking notes, Christian love grows. Christian love grows. That's where we'll start today. And that means a few different things, which we'll talk about as we go on. But the one thing that it doesn't mean is growing physically, <laughs> okay? And I say that because it was my birthday recently. Um, I don't have a problem with saying my age. I'm 39, so uh, you know, I know I look incredible for my age, right? I, I, I appreciate you thinking that right now. Uh, but it's funny because my son, who's five, every time we get in the Civic, the Honda Civic that I have, it's just a 99 Honda Civic, it's really, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the good car is what I call it. And uh, we get in and he goes, hey, daddy, you know, when it's your birthday, your head's gonna hit the ceiling of the car. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Why are you, why are you saying that? And as I tease it out, he's like, because you're going to grow, right? Like, that's what happens on your, as you have a birthday, you grow. That's how he sees it, because he grows. And I had to say, hey, man, <laughs> I, you know, when, when I get older, I don't grow anymore. Like you do. You're going to grow. You're going to keep growing. I don't. I'm, I'm an adult now. I'm, I mean, I might grow in other ways, you know what I'm saying? But I don't, I'm not going to grow that way. You know, it was really cute when he said it. Uh, so though, though we are growing as Christians uh, we might not grow this way or this way, uh, but we grow in our love is what we're going to see here. That's the way that we're growing as Christians. And as a non-Christian looks into that, who's in the culture around us, they're going to see love the exact opposite way as us. They're not going to see it this way. Love doesn't grow for them. See, in our American culture, love is, love is a subjective thing, right? It's reduced to a feeling. It's reduced to excitement or an emotion that's usually and almost always self-focused, and when you love something or someone, it's usually based off what they can do for you and how they make you feel and how well you get served in the relationship. And it's seen as this mysterious thing that you can't fully control or understand. Love is love and all that kind of language that we hear in our culture nowadays. 
But man, that kind of love, quote, love, right, it always diminishes over time. It's not long-lasting love. It doesn't grow. It diminishes. It's an infatuation. It's an emotion. It ebbs and flows with the way that you feel. So the person or thing that you once felt such emotion for and such affection for, it's going to let you down eventually. Maybe it'll leave you or... Maybe you leave it. Maybe, maybe you get your heart broken or you break somebody else's heart because, you know, it's just not the way that it was. It doesn't feel the same anymore. You know, you find love in a new place. Something else excites you in a different way with a different person or a different thing. And we'll see that Christian love is the exact opposite as Paul describes it here. It's completely opposite. Christian love doesn't diminish. It grows over time. You can count on that kind of love. This kind of love sticks with you. It leans in. It doesn't run away. It's not this whimsical thing that you can't control or put your finger on. It is mysterious in some ways, but it's a choice that you make based off of the love that you know from God. And God's love is unshakable. It's unchangeable. God's love never fails us. And so that's how our love is to be as Christians. And we'll see from the text today that Christian love, first of all, takes us low in that. It humbles us. It's choosing to serve rather than to be served. But then we're going to see that Christian love also makes us grow. Not only does it grow us and mature us in our faith, but our love itself grows over time. It doesn't diminish. It, our, our love overflows in a sense. We become more loving over time, hopefully, not less. And that's super important because love also helps us know. And we get to know other people and they get to know us. And so sometimes when we get to know somebody or they get to know us, it's scary because we start seeing all the uh, <laughs> flaws and imperfections that somebody else has, right? Or they see ours. And it's really a scary thing. So it's important that love grows even as it knows. Now, hopefully you can see where we're going with all of that today as I lay all that out. Because Christian love takes us low, makes us grow, and it helps us know. Those will be the points. And yes, again, you're welcome with the rhyming. I love doing that. Anytime I can do it, it's really fun, right? So hopefully it'll help you remember what Christian love looks like. Those are going to be our points for today. But let's go ahead and get into the text and see how those are going to become our points. This is what it shows us in chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul writes this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so before we go on to the rest of this, let's get some context for where we're at here. If you've never studied the Bible very much, this is one of the New Testament epistles. An epistle just means letter in Greek, and it's to a fairly young church here in the city of Philippi, which is a Roman city. It's only about 10 years old or so that the church would be at this time that the letter got to them. And you can read about how the church was started in Acts chapter 16, as a matter of fact. Very, very cool story. Paul the Apostle was on his second missionary tour of the Roman Empire at this time, and he's sharing the gospel and planting churches everywhere he goes. And so he took Timothy with him on this journey, who helped write this letter, he says here, along with Luke, who is the author of Acts, and and probably a few other guys. Silas is mentioned in Acts chapter 16 and 17. So uh, Silas is one of his friends. So he's probably got this little posse of guys. They go to Philippi. They meet a group of women right outside the city who are studying the Old Testament by the Cronides River. It's just right beside uh, Philippi. And it was led by this woman named Lydia. She's a God-fearing Greek woman who was a a business owner at the time. And Paul and his crew share the gospel with them. So so they come upon this uh, women's Bible study. They share the gospel and all these ladies get saved and they start following Jesus. And then Paul and Silas go throughout the city and they start stirring up trouble by sharing the gospel with people. Imagine that, you know, stirs up trouble. And they find this slave girl who's a fortune teller. She can tell the future and they, they share the gospel with her and she gets saved on the spot. And of course, her owners don't like that. You know, that's their source of income. And so they incite this mob against Paul and Silas and eventually have him arrested. 
And then when they get put in jail, they share the gospel with the, jail, the, the jailer that's there because there's some circumstances that an earthquake happens, all this crazy stuff, and they share the gospel with him. He gets saved, then his whole household gets saved. So you can see at the beginning of the Philippian church, you've got a business owner, a female business owner, and her friends, this women's Bible study. You've got a, a servant girl you know, who used to be demon-possessed, and now you've got this jailer, this average Joe and his family, all totally different walks of life, all coming together now, because they simply believe in Jesus. They believe the gospel that's been shared with them. And according to historians, by the time Paul wrote this letter, they'd have gone from this handful of ragtag people to probably about 100 or so ragtag people. Still very diverse, probably. I mean, it's, the, it's a growth rate of about 21% over 10 years. The city of Philippi was probably around 10,000 people at the time, which you know, at the time was a fairly large city. It was no small city, which means they'd reached about 1% of their population there. Now, that's very interesting that over the last month, we've laid out a vision for us to reach 1% of our population here. Now, for us, that's 1,000 people to reach here in Roanoke. But so far in three years, we've had a growth rate of, get this, 95%. That's pretty incredible. Okay, they had 21%. We have 95. I'm not comparing, but, you know, I mean, I'm just saying, right? <laughs> that's pretty incredible. Man, just think about and imagine what God can do here over the next five years if we lean into the mission with him. If we allow God to use us to reach other people, just like they were reaching in Philippi. It's going to be awesome here in Roanoke. I'm, I'm excited for that. But let's go on. Verse 3, Paul wrote this. After he gives his intro and his welcome to them, or his, you know, hello to them, he says in verse 3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you all are partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. All right, that's where we'll stop for this week. Very interesting stuff. Notice all the affectionate language that Paul uses with them here, right? Not only does he thank them every time that he remembers them in his prayers and all of that, but he also sees them as partners. That's the language. He says that twice here with them. And he has them in his heart, and he deeply misses them with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's, I mean, he uses all this language. So love is not more than feelings. Excuse me, love is more than feelings, but it's certainly not less than feelings, right? He's showing feeling. He's showing emotion to them. And Paul's trying to communicate his love. And he starts by ta- taking this humble posture with them. And he, he, he began in verse 1 by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants, Doulos, that's the word here. He's saying, I'm, I'm your servant. I'm not your leader. He could have used the word apostle. He does that in some of his other letters to assert his authority over them. He doesn't do that here. You know what I mean? Apostle just literally means teacher. So he was the guy that came in, and as we heard from the Acts chapter 16 story, he could have come in and said, hey, you guys wouldn't exist if it weren't for me. I'm your father in the faith, Paul here. Listen to what I have to say. He doesn't do that, does he? He starts by saying, I'm your servant. I'm here to serve you. He builds them up. Rather than building himself up. That's really interesting. He makes himself low. And that's the first point for today that you can write down. Christian love takes you low. That's where this comes in. He takes this humble posture to build them up rather than building himself up. He's a servant. He calls them saints. 
He uses that terminology. Now, we talked about this in our vision series last month, but really what that means is it's, they're God's people. They're part of the remnant of Israel now who follows God. And God's going to use them as he used Israel to be a blessing to the nations. They're blessed to be a blessing by God. They get to participate in the mission with him to reach the world. They're saints. They're, they're God's people. And Paul's building them up in this way with affection, talking about his love, encouraging them. And I think we should start by just asking this of ourselves. Do we talk this way to one another? It's a really good application for us. You can write this down to reflect. Do I show this kind of affection and love to other believers? Is that the kind of language I use? Is that kind of disposition that I have when I interact with other Christians? Like I said, love is certainly more than feelings, but it's not less. And I know it's probably not enough for me to say this to you guys. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I can hear voices back here. Can you hear the voices? Is it just me? Hey, can you guys stop talking in that room back there? I'm so sorry, but I can hear like every word that you're saying. It's so loud to me. Uh, speaking of word, speaking of language, I, not, being, not trying to judge or anything. I'm just saying, it's, I just, I can't like hear myself think. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Love being in this kind of space, don't you guys? This is great. Uh, Calvary just looks better and better and better every time we look over there. Um, all right. So, hey, uh, Sorry. I just wanted to tell you guys that I love you, actually. <laughs> it's a good lead-in for me to say I love you all. You know, it's not enough for me to say it from stage like this in a setting where I'm just talking to all of you all at once, but I just hope you realize that I do. Like, as your pastor, I don't do this for just because, I, you know, I'm trying to get a paycheck. I don't do this, you know, for some other reason. I do it because I love you guys, and I hope that you hear my heart on that. I really do. You pro I probably love you more than you realize and more than I certainly express, and I want to get better at doing this even in a one-on-one -on -one way where I can use this kind of language where we long for one another. We're affectionate toward one another. We miss each other. We, we love each other. I hope you guys will think about that too. Do you show affection and love to other believers? And each time we think about how much we love each other, man, that should take us low. And it should remind us of how privileged we are to be partners in the gospel together. You know, it means no one in our church is more or less important than the other. I mean, that's what Paul says. Paul's an apostle. He's like, nobody's more important here. I'm not saying that I'm more important. I'm, not, I'm your servant. And I want you guys to hear that from me. I'm your servant. Nobody's more or less important in our church. We're all on mission together. We're all partners. I think, at least in the American church culture, we're more worried about who's in charge or who has more authority or seniority or who gets recognized more. But true Christian love should humble us. It should make us low. It should take, make us grateful and thankful that we get to be on mission together as partners with one another, partnering in something bigger than ourselves here in our city, love takes us low. But the second point that you can write down for today is Christian love makes you grow. Christian love makes you grow because as you learn to let your love take you low, it will grow you. I mean, being humble, trying to practice humility, being humbled when you don't want to be sometimes, man, that makes you grow. It stretches you, right? This is basically our main point for today, that Christian love makes you grow in some sense. It's the main thrust of what Paul's talking about here in Philippians completely. It's, he's starting with love. You've got to grow in your love. I want to pray. I'm praying for you. My desire is that you should grow in your love. Inherent in the Christian life is this need to grow. That's part of what it looks like to mature in your faith and to grow as a Christian. You're, we're not made perfect when we become believers. I don't know if we're all aware of that, just in case you didn't realize it, right? The moment that you believe, you don't get made perfect. Nobody does. It's a process that God has for us. And thank God we see what Paul says here in verse 6. This has gotten me through a lot of things in my life. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's the one who started the work of salvation. He's the one that's going to see it to completion. 
Man, what a beautiful thing for us to think about. God is the one completing what he started, which means, no, we're not going to be perfect right now. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That God's not looking down his nose at us, thinking, well, I guess I'll enter in and help him again. Man, rolling his eyes. Oh, here we go again, one more time. That's not how God is. He expects us to be imperfect, and he's helping us grow in our love, and he's going to see that to completion in his own time, in his own way, until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, he uses loving relationships that we have with one another to do that, for sure. So our church, our Christian community, wherever we are, it's a part of God growing us. But that's why Paul tells the Philippians how he prays for them. He wants to see them grow. He's like, I know that you need to grow. I'm growing. I know that you need to grow. And his main prayer is that their love would grow for one another. That's very interesting. He says in verse 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. What's he mean by that? Well, he's referring to holiness, no doubt. He talks about being pure and blameless and all this on the day when Jesus returns. So when heaven comes down to earth in eternity, right? He's saying, keep your eyes on eternity. I want, to, I want you to see eternity and live in light of that. So you're going to grow in your holiness in that way. But he's praying that they would grow not just in Christ-likeness in general, but in their love. Love is the key here to Christ-likeness. We've got to catch what Christ-likeness really is in the Bible. At its most basic level, it's love. You can write this down as well. Being more like Christ looks like loving others more. Being more like Jesus looks like loving others more. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like not cussing or not, you know, doing stuff that's bad or saying things that are bad. I mean, it can look like that over time. I'm not saying it won't. I'm just saying what it primarily looks like is that you grow in your love. Got to get the order right. That's how it always is. Got to start in the right place. Doing good things, being perfect, that's not what it's all about. Growing in love for God and for each other is what it's all about. That changes the way that you live. That will change the decisions that you make. That will change the language that you have. But you've got to start in the right place, always. That's why we have community and DNA groups here at our church, because those kinds of things push us to do that. You know, being in community helps us grow in our love for one another in general, but then helps us grow in our love for God. You know, we do life together. We help each other when we're in need. We act as family to one another, really. When we're hurting, we're there, and all of that kind of stuff. But then we push each other to God's love for us. We push each other to the gospel. We push each other to the scriptures. We study the Bible together. All of those things help us grow in our love. DNA groups are the same way, but more accountability-focused. So if you want to get more like Christ in the way that you speak and the decisions you make and the way that you act, get into a DNA group. Because that's when you can rub up against each other and say, hey, Brother or sister, I see this thing in your life that I don't know that you ought to have. You, you open yourself up to allow people to speak that into your life, and then they're opening themselves up to you so that you can help one another grow in purity and blamelessness and righteousness in these kinds of ways. So let me ask another hard question. I do love you all, so let me ask it this way. You can write this down and reflect. Am I making excuses for why I'm not in community? Is that something you're doing in your life right now? Are you making excuses for not being in a community group or for not being around other Christians on a regular basis? Maybe you say, well, I'm too busy with schoolwork. I'm, I'm too busy with family stuff. I, you blame it on having kids or a baby or whatever it is for you. And I think it's worth asking, are you afraid to be in Christian community? Is that why you're not doing it, really? Because you're not sure anybody's going to love you the way that Paul's telling us to here. You're afraid. You're afraid of getting hurt. And I want to encourage you, listen, I know that, that that could be a possibility. You're opening yourself up to doing that, to, to getting hurt. But I promise you that the people in these groups here in our church will love you. They will. If, if you'll lean in and take the risk, it's risky. 
Being in Christian community, opening yourself up with love, that's risky. But you got to be willing to take the risk and be willing to get hurt, even though it could be scary. Because you're opening yourself up to being known by others, but they're also opening themselves up to being known by you. And so this is our third point for today as well that you can write down. Christian love helps you know. And that's the last point that we'll have here, a big heading point. Christian love helps you know. It takes you low, it makes you grow, and then it helps you know these are all interconnected. They all build on one another. They're all intertwined. Because Christian love, as you grow in humility and knowledge and discernment of yourself, of others, and ultimately of God, it helps you grow and mature in your faith. And then you get to know each other more and more, and you get to know God more and more. It's just this circular thing that continues to happen. But it starts with knowing yourself and knowing your own sin, and knowing all the things that you struggle with, you become acutely aware of and know the things that you struggle with, the imperfections you have. And I know that's, that's what makes it scary about opening yourself up to others so that they'll know you too, because they'll, they're going to see all those things that you see in yourself. They're going to see all those imperfections. They're going to see all those nasty sins and all those bad things that you feel guilty about and that you don't want other people to see. Just keep in mind, they're letting you do the same thing to them, right? That's what this knowledge looks like. You're knowing them. They're knowing you. You're going to see their junk. They're going to see yours. But if we're growing in love, we're getting to know others more and more, and we're able to speak God's love into them, not judge them, right? That's what it looks like to be a Christian. Paul's emphasizing growing in love. So when you get to know somebody and you grow in your knowledge and discernment, it's not just growing in knowledge and discernment. He says it's growing in love, which leads to knowledge and discernment. That's a really important distinction. He says in another letter to the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. See, love builds up. Knowledge is the thing that puffs you up. So if it's knowledge apart from love, then it's not going to be anything good. It's going to lead actually to the opposite of love. It's going to lead to pride and judgment of others. But man, if you grow in your love, that's the key here. See, our ministry resident, uh, Matt, he's in seminary classes right now, and he said that going to seminary has reminded him how much he doesn't know. You know? <laughs> it's like, man, I just don't know as much as I thought I did. And you know what? That's the right response if you're growing in love. Because that's what it looks like. He's realizing how much he doesn't know. And he's, it's taking him low, right? He's growing his humility over time. I, I've seen the exact opposite response from people that go to seminary. I, I've been in class with guys who, rather than humbling them, it puffs them up. They're learning all this new information about the Bible. They're learning how to read things. They're learning historical context. They're learning church fathers. They're learning all this. And they're like, well, I'm coming to the end. I'm arriving here, right? I know all this stuff. It begins to grow their pride rather than their love. And Christian love takes you low. And it makes you grow so that when you get to know other Christians and other believers and they get to know you, they'll see your sin. You'll see theirs. But you can show them love and grace as a result, not pride. That's the key. Here's another question to ask yourself today. Do I struggle with feeling like I'm better than others? And that's a, that's a, that's a hard one, right? Because I know we all do at some level. I mean, it's kind of a rhetorical question. We all do at some, at some point. Do I struggle with feeling like I'm better than others? Because if you do, man, in those moments, you're being puffed up rather than building others up. You're not loving. You're not growing in love. You're just growing in empty knowledge. Uh, what this can look like is multiple things. I'll just give you some, some examples. You make non-gospel issues primary issues. That's just one example. So what I mean is you take a primary issue like what it means to be a Christian, which means you've got to believe that Jesus is the only way to God, right? That's a primary theological issue. If you deny that, you're not a Christian, okay? If you, if you don't know that Jesus is the only way, then you, you can't be a Christian. But you take a theological issue like that that's primary, and you then build up lesser things, and you say that they're equal with that. 
So here's an example. In our Christian context, it's controversial, just pointing that out, okay, so you can prepare. There's an ongoing conversation around sending your kids to public or private or homeschool. Now, I don't know that anybody, I haven't talked to anybody in here that I'm not trying to be passive aggressive. I haven't talked to any of you, so I don't know, okay? I don't know where you stand on this. I don't know if it's an ongoing argument or something, but I know that it is in broader Christian culture. I've heard it. I've heard it talked about multiple times, and somebody can take a hard stance and say, well, Christians ought to do one or the other. This is the Christian way of doing it. In other words, they've elevated something that's secondary or tertiary, and they've elevated something that's primary. And they've said the Christian view is to do X, Y, or Z. While you can have an opinion on something like that, good reasons why you might choose that for your family, whichever it is, it's not a gospel issue. Just not. So if you think your opinion is the only right opinion, and you think that your opinion is better than other people, and that gives you an air of superiority rather than humility to remember that you don't know as much as you think you do, then you're puffed up and you're struggling with this. I know Christians who do this with church denominations as well. You know, I've heard other pastors say things like, well, we're just trying to be biblical. We're just trying to do it the biblical way, okay? And they say it with this air of superiority like, well, you know, if you don't do it this way, then you're not really that biblically faithful. Now, we're trying to be faithful, but all these other denominations out there, I'm like, brother, <laughs> you know, there are denominations for a reason. You're telling me that just because we believe something, we have convictions, don't get me wrong, right? I'm, we're very clear about those here. We're a Baptist church for a reason. We have convictions around believer's baptism, and I'm not going to move on that ever. But I'll tell you, when I look at my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, do I go, they're not being biblically faithful because they view baptism differently than I do? Ooh, man, that's a bad place to be. And you're getting puffed up. You're not building others up. I know Christians who do this uh, with one more thing, politics. And I want to keep preparing you guys for this this year, Okay. I mean, this is going to be the most divisive year yet, I would say. And if you're growing in your knowledge and discernment in love, then you're going to seek to build others up, not tear them down or get puffed up yourself. Because fortunately or unfortunately, there's not one right view on how to vote. I hate to break it to you if that's what you think. If there's a Christian way to vote and a non-Christian way to vote, Jesus doesn't tell us how to vote. He tells us how to love. Right? If you're growing in Christian love then this is where you need to be, no matter where you fall. I have convictions. I have reasons why I'm going to vote the way I'm going to vote. Nobody's saying you don't. Nobody's saying that you move on those things. What we're saying is love. Love others. And I hate to get that. I feel like I have to get hard with people on that because politics has become an idol for so many. Instead of wanting to grow in love, they want to grow in knowledge, and they have that right way that you're going to vote. You can't be a Christian if you don't vote X, Y, or Z, right? Wrong. You've been growing in your knowledge and been puffed up, brother or sister in Christ. You need to repent. But listen, we all do. Because we all see ourselves as better than other people at times, like I said. We have to approach this in humility. That's why it starts with making us low. But I highlighted what Jesus said in, uh, to his disciples in John 13 a few weeks ago. I'll read it again. He said, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another What's the new command there? He says to love other people like he loves them. To love other people not just like you love yourself, but like he loves them. With grace. With patience. Think about 1 Corinthians 13, the character of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Now, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth but it bears all things and it believes all things and it hopes all things and it endures all things. In other words, it grows. It doesn't diminish, it grows. 
This is what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about growing in your superiority, growing in your knowledge. You gotta know more stuff in order to be a mature Christian. No, you gotta love more deeply. He's talking about growing in love. We gotta take that log out of our own eye, friends, before we try to take the speck out of somebody else's. Doesn't mean you never point out the speck. Doesn't mean you never deal with that. It just means you start with the pride in your own heart first. That's what it means. Because one of the main problems underlying any sin in our life is pride. It's kind of one of those foundational sins that we all struggle with, is it not? We're all for ourselves. Pride usually shows up when we try to fix people, I think. You know, prideful people always try to fix other people. That's all. Man, you see something in someone else, you're like, oh, that's terrible. Now me, man, I'm so thankful for the grace that I have in Jesus. Thank you, God. for. But them, man, they need to be jerked up and changed, right? I mean, it's really interesting, though, that Jesus, the only people he was hard on were the Pharisees, the people that didn't show love and patience and kindness to others. Very interesting to me, the religious elite were the only ones that he had harsh words for because they couldn't see the log in their own eye. They couldn't see that they weren't loving people. They weren't doing the very foundational thing that the law told them to do, which was to love others. They, they, they saw the speck in everybody else, but they couldn't see the log in their own Here's the major problem you can write down. The problem is when we focus on others' faults, we don't have to focus on our own. We don't have to deal with our own faults if we look at other people's. That's one reason why we do it, right? To get the focus off of ourselves and to get it on other people. It's a way for us to compare ourselves, unfairly, by the way, to somebody else because we want to feel better about ourselves. At that moment, we're taking salvation out of the hands of Jesus and we're saying, I've got to make sure I make myself feel good. I've got to comfort myself. I've got to save myself. I've got to make sure that if I can compare myself to somebody else, then I'll feel better. And it stunts our growth in love. We're not growing in our love. We're growing in our puffed up knowledge because if we're going to grow in love, we've got to grow in the knowledge of our own sin first. And it's got to take us low. We've got to deal with our own sins before we can try to deal with somebody else's. The problem is God's standard for holiness is Jesus. It's not somebody else. It's not some, you know, whatever you want to say, LGBTQ person out in the culture. It's not some person who's woke or whatever like that. It's not some person on the radical far right who's a racist. I, I mean, it's, it's not any of those things. That's not the comparison. The comparison is Jesus's perfection. Oh my. God's standard is way beyond what you and I think that it is. No matter how right you think you are, no matter how, uh, you know, important a theological or moral issue is to you and how right you think you are, you're always wrong on something else, friend. You're wrong on something. I promise you that because we're all sinners. John wrote this in one of his letters. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Oh my, that's how serious it is. That's not hyperbole. He's not saying that, oh yeah, well, we can, we can still, we can be more perfect. We can be more like Jesus and we'll be okay. No, no, no. He's saying you're always a sinner. There's sin in you. And if you deny that, you don't understand the truth of the gospel. So we have to come to God knowing that our good behavior and our good choices are not good enough. They never will be good enough, no matter how mature you become. If there's anything good done in you, it's because Jesus does it, not you. Here's what Paul writes a little further on in Philippians to make this point go home. Do not put confidence in the flesh. That's what he's talking about when he says that in what you do and how good you are. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, Paul says. That's very interesting. He says, if anyone else thinks that he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. So he's pure, pure blood, right? Tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, 
Regarding the law, a Pharisee, which means he believed all the right things. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church, which mean, means he was doing all the right things. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He followed it to a T. He did everything right. But then he says in verse 7, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's that word, knowing. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. See, what he's saying is that righteousness means being made right with God. It doesn't mean being perfect. Righteousness is not one of those things that you have to work in yourself and now you've got to make sure you make all the right choices. No, no, no. Righteousness is being made right with God. It's relational. It's relational. And it comes by faith in Jesus, not anything good you can do. Everything else looks like poop, he says here. If I, I mean, that's, that's the language. It's just a waste. And actually, the word is a very strong word. It's not just a potty word. It's probably more comparable to our slang word that starts with S and ends with T. And I won't say it. I know I'll get a lot of hate for that. Not that I think it would be wrong, because I think that's actually what he said here. It's all just a bunch of crap. It's, it's crap compared to knowing Jesus. Yeah, it's strong language. That's what he's saying. Love, knowledge of him, not of the law, not of doing the right things, not of knowing all the right stuff. Man, some of us are sitting here today, and we still don't get it. We still don't understand that. You think you've got to know more things. You've got to know the right person. Got to know the right person, guys. I'll, I'm only saying it because I love you. That's what Paul's saying here. It's useless. It's only knowing and being known by Jesus that makes us right with God. His love could have lost its excitement with us. Could have lost its appeal, could have diminished over time. Looking look to see how sinful and rebellious we really are and think how prideful we are and how we have it all together. And he's like, man, you don't know. He sees that and instead his love grows for us rather than diminishes. He was willing to not only give his life for us, live the perfect life that we should live, but then he died the death that we deserve so that he could overcome death for us. Jesus, though he knows us, he loves us anyway. And I say it like this all the time. I think you can write it down like this. Jesus loves us because he knows us. Because of our sin. He didn't look at us and say, well, I guess I'll just have to go and save them because they can't save themselves. I guess I'll just give it a try. I guess I'll have to step in one more time, right? How often do we think of God just rolling his eyes at us again? He sent Jesus because he knew we needed his love. He knew we needed saving he knew that we were imperfect and we were never going to be and we were never going to get it. And he sent Jesus because of that. When will we understand the depths of our own sin but the depths of his grace for us? I had a really good conversation on that this week in Isaiah chapter 6. It was the surprise for Isaiah. Remember last week we talked about this. He went in and he saw God's power. He saw God's glory. He was terrified. He was afraid. And then that coal comes to him. On his lips, remember that? The angel comes with the coal and he thinks he's going to be consumed. Woe is me, I'm a dead man. This, is, this coal represents the wrath of God against my sin and he's going to touch my lips and I'm going to be consumed. And what happens when he is touched? He's cleansed. It's the surprise of grace. I see the depth of my need. I'm so sinful. I'm so far from God's perfection. And yet instead of consuming me, he cleanses me. It's the beauty of the gospel 
that we believe. That's extremely ordinary Christianity. Yeah, over time, this is going to look different ways. And so let me give you some application for today. Probably a thousand different ways that uh, this could play out for us. But God never tries to fix us all at once, does he? So why do we try to fix each other? It's really interesting to me. He does it over time. He doesn't try to fix us all at once and make us perfect. That would be overloading for us. I don't know if you realize that or not, but I know it would be for me. Because as soon as I see one sin in my life, and I'm like, I've got that now. I've got some control over that now. And then, and then God just points out one more, right? I'm like, man, well, I thought I was good, but I guess I'm not, you know? <laughs> and we're all called to be the same for one another and to point one another to that grace that he has for us, that surprise of the beauty of the gospel. And so here's our application for today, if you want to write this down. Share God's love with everyone. That's the key for us. That's the main principle of being a Christian, by the way. It's not judging others. It's not trying to point out every flaw that everybody has. It's not trying to fix other people. It's growing in your love and sharing that love with everyone else. That's how we help one another grow in love. Right? Love is the only thing that can change us. It's not trying to be critical of one another. Again, I'm not saying that we never point things out. But that means whatever we have as convictions ourselves, our primary goal is to love first. And yeah, you can be the street preacher out on the, pre- out on the street that, that's yelling at people and telling them they're going to hell and that they're murderers if they have abortion and, and they're terrible people and they need to turn and bur- repent or they're going to burn in hell. You can do that, but if they don't know that that's out of love, then it's not going to help anybody. I'm just using that as just one of many examples of how Christians operate. We think that just because we're preaching the gospel, well, I'm loving people. Okay, well, if you have that attitude when you tell me, you're obviously not, okay? You need to grow in your humility. You need to grow in your love. You need to grow in your knowledge of God, yourself, and others. You need to grow in these ways. But yeah, that might mean pointing out sin in a brother or sister. I don't want to make a false dichotomy here. Yes, you may need to go to somebody this week and say, hey, I could be wrong, but I see this thing in you that you might want to consider changing because I love you, right? Hey, hey, I see that you're not caring for your body well. I see that uh, you might want to make some lifestyle changes. Here, let me help. I'm not judging you, but I love you, and I want to help you do that. Or, hey, listen, you shouldn't be living with your boyfriend or girlfriend or having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm not judging you for that, but I see this in you. I, I love you so much. Let me help you. Let me help you. Or, hey, I could be wrong, but I think I see some pride in your life. I know I'm prideful too, but I just when you said X, Y, or Z, or when you did X, Y, or Z, I think you might have some pride that you might not be aware of. I'm not judging you for it. I'm prideful too, but I love you. And I want to help you see it. And there are times to point things out, no doubt. And there are times to simply establish that you love someone as well. And I think that's the thing that sometimes we miss in our Christian culture today. Because if somebody doesn't think that you love them, it's not going to be helpful to tell them how they're wrong and what they're doing that they need to fix. They're not going to be able to hear it. We need to make sure that we love them first and that they know that we love them first. doesn't mean you never speak up at some point, but it means when you do, it's out of an abundance of love that they know that you have for them. Because the only thing that can grow us is love. That's what Paul's saying here. We we need to grow in our love. How can we grow in our love? When we grow in our love for Jesus and knowing his love for us. When we grow in loving others and knowing that they love us. It's growing in all of these different ways. And so, yeah, you might need to point sin out to someone or you might just need to love them. I'll end with this story just to make it a little bit more controversial today if it wasn't already, okay? Alistair Begg, who's an old pastor outside of Cleveland, Ohio, Parkside Church there. I listen to him a lot for our sermons. When I'm doing sermon research, I'll, he's the guy. A 
love this dude. And he, he uh, recently came under fire from what we'll call the religious right. I know I'm just, it's a label that we use, so try not to read too far into that. But they heard of this story where on his podcast, he heard from a grandmother who told him that his, her granddaughter was a lesbian and that she was getting married. And she just didn't know what to do. She, she loved her granddaughter. And she didn't want her granddaughter to feel like she didn't love her, but she, she didn't want to support the marriage. She didn't want to affirm the lifestyle, so to speak. She wanted to love her without affirming the lifestyle. So she was saying, what do I do? What do I do, Pastor? I don't, I don't know. And, you know, after talking it out, and he said that uh, after thinking about it and, and giving this one particular woman this advice, he said, you know, I, I think you should go. He said, I think you, uh, you, you ought to pray about it first and, and talk to your husband about it and, and get wise counsel from others as well. But he said, she's going to expect you to shun her. She's going to expect you to distance yourself from her. She's going to expect you not to want to talk to her ever again. And he said, you ought to do the exact opposite because Christian love teaches us to lean in, not to pull away. Christian love teaches us that while we were still sinners, Jesus came for us. He, he related to us. So he came under fire for that. People were telling him, repent. It is terrible. You know, this is not the Christian view. But listen, if you say that to somebody like Alistair Begg, something's a little off with you, okay? Because if you've ever seen his 30 plus years of ministry, you'll know this dude knows the gospel and he knows Jesus. And when he addressed it in a recent sermon, he just simply cited Luke 15 and said the Pharisees lack love for people as well. He said, I fear that some of my brothers and sisters who've said that I've done wrong here need to repent and turn to the love that God has for them once again. Because anybody who can't extend love to others, no matter who they are, what they've done, what kind of lifestyle they choose, they can't know Jesus' love for them. Because Jesus met us there when we were in need. He met us there when we weren't perfect. Oh, by the way, we still aren't, right? He loved us when we rejected him. He started with love. Again, that doesn't mean we don't call out sin. The grandmother in this situation, she'd already made note, like the daughter, the granddaughter knew that her grandmother didn't approve. The granddaughter knew that her grandmother didn't want her to get married to him. She knew that she didn't agree with the LGBTQ lifestyle. She knew all of those things. She didn't need her grandmother to try to fix her. She needed love. She needs love. There are thousands of people in this city who need your love rather than your judgment. Again, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement here about going to you know, gay weddings or anything like that. This is a conscious issue. But Alistair's point was that she needed love. So much we could say on this topic. If you need to talk to me after the service, I'll be out in the hall. I'd love to do that. We can talk about it in community group this week with our friends, all of that. For today, I want you to remember this as you walk away from this. Love takes us low, it makes us grow, and it helps us know. So let's point one another back to that love this week. Let's grow in our love together. That's extremely ordinary Christianity. Let me pray. God, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our, our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.